Well, this morning we are going to try to deal with a very controversial subject without being controversial. Now, that may sound impossible and that may prove to be the case, but we're going to try. And the subject is divorce. And the controversy is long-standing. In fact, when Jesus re-entered Judea after his Galilean ministry and his withdrawal into Gentile territories to spend time with the Twelve and focus on teaching them, the Pharisees sought to entangle him in the controversy over divorce. And Matthew sets the scene for us in chapter 19, the first three verses. And it came about when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, the Pharisees weren't looking for an authoritative answer from the Son of God. They were simply trying to make him take sides on a controversial issue. For among the Jews in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought on the matter of divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, it spoke of a man divorcing his wife because he had found some indecency in her. And the rabbis were divided over what constituted indecency. Shammai taught that indecency was limited to gross indecency of a sexual nature. And Hillel taught that indecency was anything a man didn't like. According to Hillel, if a man's wife burnt his food, she could be divorced because that was indecent of her. Obviously, his views were the most popular with the men. And, of course, it didn't matter what the women thought because they didn't have any say in the matter. It was a loaded question the Pharisees were bringing to Jesus, one they hoped would turn the multitudes against him and perhaps even cost him his life, as it had for John the Baptist. But Jesus answered the question without actually entering into the controversy. He simply taught some basic truths about divorce that few people could deny. And hopefully those truths will answer most of our questions as well. He began by going back to God's intent in creating male and female and makes it clear that divorce separates what God as joined together. Verses 4 through 6. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two 
but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus goes back to creation itself. God created men and women different. And he did so for a good reason. He didn't just make Eve to be a friend to Adam. She was intended to complete him, to make him whole. She brought to Adam what he lacked, not only physically, but emotionally. And together, they became what God intended them to be. Together, they became one, joined together by God. And in spite of the current judicial opinions to the contrary... That's the way it's supposed to be. God intends for a man and a woman to separate themselves from their parents, to cleave to one another, and to be joined together into one flesh. That is God's design, and that is the only marital bond that God can bless. And what God has joined together, Jesus said, let no man separate. We could just leave it there, were it not for hardness of heart. Verses 7 and 8. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. The Pharisees were looking for loopholes. Wait a minute, they cried. Divorce is legal. Moses said we could give our wife a certificate and divorce her. Now, the law they were quoting is found in Deuteronomy 24. And it does refer to the process of writing a certificate of divorce. But the law was not addressing the propriety of divorce. It was simply stating that if someone did divorce his wife and she married someone else, he could never remarry her, even if her second husband died. Why? Because... She had been defiled, and it would be an abomination before the Lord for them to remarry. Now, I don't fully understand what that means. But it is clear that Moses is not opening the door to wholesale divorce here. Apparently, the Mosaic Code did allow a man to divorce his wife if he found some indecency in her. But it was never God's intent for a man and wife to divorce. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. Besides, Jesus said it was only because of hardness of heart that Moses permitted it. 
And hardness of heart not only leads to alienation from one's mate, it leads to alienation from God. In fact, Malachi had this to say about divorce. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. But she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But no one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The answer to hardness of heart is taking heed to your spirit. A spirit that is hopefully indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if you follow the leading of God's Spirit, you will not seek a divorce. Because God hates divorce. Not everyone, however has the Spirit of God. And, sad to say, those who find themselves married to an unbeliever because they disobeyed the Lord and married an unbeliever, or because they became a believer after their marriage, or because their spouse turned his or her back on the Lord and hardened their heart, they do sometimes find themselves being divorced, whether they want it or not. But even then, we have to be very careful because divorce, even a divorce that was not desired, can lead to further sin. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, we tend to focus on the except clause here. Except for immorality. And it's something that's also found in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, and it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the word translated unchastity in Matthew 5 and immorality in Matthew 19 is the same word, pornea, from which we get pornography. And it refers to sexual immorality. 
Jesus is clearly stating that if someone violates the sanctity of the marriage bond through sexual immorality, be it adultery or some other act of sexual immorality that could include homosexual activity, the marriage bond is broken and a formal recognition of such through a divorce is allowable. I do hasten to point out, however, that Jesus is not insisting that divorce follows unfaithfulness. The prophet Hosea continued to take Gomer back after her harlotry as a symbol of God's forgiveness. And forgiveness should always be the first option for a believer. But divorce is permissible if the marriage bed has been defiled. If it has not been, however, divorce opens the door to further sin. Because to divorce your mate for any reason other than sexual immorality and to marry another is to commit adultery. And as we saw in Matthew 5, to divorce your wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, puts her in a position of committing adultery if she remarries and causes whoever marries her to commit adultery as well. Now, Mark, who was writing to Romans, who allowed women to divorce their husbands, makes it clear that the same things hold true if a woman divorces her husband. So, according to Jesus, divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality, puts even the innocent party in a position of committing adultery if they marry again. And it makes anyone who marries a person who has been divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality commit adultery as well. Now, we must not overlook the fact that even adultery can be forgiven. Jesus makes it very clear that it can. And he did so by the way he dealt with a woman caught in adultery. Now, if in taking another mate you did commit adultery... That sin can be forgiven if it's acknowledged as such. And once it's forgiven, you are to remain faithful to your current mate. Repentance does not require you to go back to a former mate. In fact, it does not allow it. For as we've already noted, to do so would be an abomination before the Lord. So adultery, like any other sin, can be forgiven. However, we must never forget that according to Hebrews 10, to enter into sin willfully is to trample underfoot the Son of God, 
is to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant and is to insult the spirit of grace. So no one can say, well, I know it's not right, but God will forgive me. So I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. No one, no one should intentionally enter into a relationship that Christ has declared to be adulterous. Now, I know this is a hard teaching. And we could spend a lot of time asking further questions and what-ifs. And it's true that Paul does seem to indicate in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's permissible for a believer to remarry if they've been abandoned by an unbeliever. But we can't explore all the possible situations and contingencies related to divorce this morning in this hour. I do imagine we'll deal with some of them during the Sunday school hour, so you're welcome to join us back in the fellowship hall. And I'm willing to sit down with anyone who has specific questions on this matter. But for now, let's leave it where Jesus left it and acknowledge, as did the disciples, that this is a hard teaching. And realize that every aspect of marriage and divorce should be carefully considered before entering into marriage. Verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The disciples responded to Jesus' teaching on divorce by saying, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. In other words, if a man can't get out of it, he's better off to never marry. And in one respect, Jesus seems to agree. It is better not to marry at all than to get married thinking you can get out of it. However, not everyone can or obviously should go through life unmarried. Some people can. Some people are born to be celibate because of a physical or emotional limitation that makes them unsuitable as a marriage partner. Others have been made eunuchs by men, having been physically castrated or simply cut off from any possibility of marriage by their lot in life. And some have voluntarily given up the right to marry so they can be of more service to God. And if someone is able to accept the celibate lifestyle, Jesus said, let them accept it. And by doing so, they will never find themselves in a marital relationship from which they wish to escape but can't. Most people, however, are destined 
to marry. God designed us for marriage. But we should realize going into it that divorce is not an option. And if we're not willing to accept the permanency of marriage, it would be better not to marry at all. When we make a vow to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, we better mean it. C.S. Lewis has this to say about our marriage vows. Now, everyone who has been married in a church has made a public, solemn promise to stick to his or her partner till death. The duty of keeping that promise has no special connection with sexual morality. It is in the same position as any other promise. To this, someone may reply that he regarded the promise made in church as a mere formality and never intended to keep it. Whom then was he trying to deceive when he made it? God? That was very unwise. Himself? That was not very much wiser. The bride or bridegroom or the in-laws, that was treacherous. Most often, I think, the couple or one of them hoped to deceive the public. They wanted the respectability that is attached to marriage without intending to pay the price. That is, they were imposters. They cheated. If people do not believe in permanent marriage, it is perhaps better that they should live together unmarried than that they should make vows they do not mean to keep. It is true that by living together without marriage, they will be guilty in Christian eyes of fornication. But one fault is not mended by adding another. Unchastity is not improved by adding perjury. Now, I think what he says here is true. But if people don't believe in permanent marriage, it's even better that they remain celibate. Not only for their sake and for the sake of their mate, but also for the sake of the children. And divorce can hinder children from coming to Christ. Verses 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now, I find it very interesting that both Matthew and Mark include this little narrative about children being brought to Jesus right after his teaching on divorce. Now, I don't want to make more of it than I should, but there may be a connection here. It certainly shows that Jesus didn't overlook the needs and feelings of children. The disciples thought he was too busy to be bothered with the children. But Mark says Jesus became indignant when he saw what they were doing, he was really upset that they would hinder the children from coming to him. 
And I am certain he is upset by anything that hinders children from coming to him. And certainly, no one will deny that divorce can hinder children from coming to Christ. How can we teach them of his faithfulness and commitment and unconditional love if we don't practice it in our homes? How will our children learn to trust in a loving Heavenly Father if their own father put his needs and desires above them? How can we expect them to develop a relationship with Christ that will endure when things aren't going well if we teach them to jump out of a relationship when the going gets rough? In Ephesians 5, Paul compares the relationship of a husband and his wife to the relationship that exists between Christ and his church. So we better make certain that the relationship we have with our spouse doesn't hinder the relationship we want our children to build with Christ. That will obviously have a bearing on the way we treat each other on a daily basis. And it will certainly affect any decision we make with regard to divorce. So what do we say about divorce? We say it separates what God has joined together. It is a concession to hardness of heart. It often leads to other sin, further sin. It should be considered before marriage, and it can hinder children from coming to Christ. I don't think anyone would disagree with those statements. And I don't think any of us will disagree with the following statement by C.S. Lewis. If you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he's one of the greatest Christian uh, apologists from the last century. Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. There is, of course, a difference here between different churches. Some do not admit divorce at all. Some allow it reluctantly in very special cases. It is a great pity that Christians should disagree about such a question. But for an ordinary layman, the thing to notice is that churches all agree with one another about marriage a great deal more than any of them agrees with the outside world. I mean, they all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body, as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think the operation so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all disagree with is the modern view that it is a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another 
or when either of them falls in love with someone else. We draw our study to a close by repeating what Jesus said to the Pharisees. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let's leave it there. And we can leave it there if we are truly willing to surrender our all to the Lordship of Christ. And it is to that that we are called this morning. Let's stand.